This podcast contains content and language not suitable for some listeners. Welcome to Oddities and Curiosities, a podcast about murder, the paranormal, and other oddities sure to pique your curiosity. We are Amanda and Brittany. Hey, y'all. Hey, girl. Hey. Sup. <laughs> Sup, dude. <laughs> <laughs> and there we go again. Yeah. It's a thing. How you doing? I'm great. I'm just peachy fucking king. I knew you were going <laughs> to say that. <laughs> I knew peachy was coming out somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> all good in the hood. Yeah. It's all good. <laughs> we're, we're still rolling. Yep. So it's episode 30. The big three, y'all, y'all. We're 30 now. Plantations. Yes. Whale. I declare. I do declare. (laughs) That makes me think of The Office. (laughs) When they're doing that murder mystery. Oh, my God. I want to be Voodoo Mama Juju. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's a great episode. Yeah, it is. Going to have to go back and watch that one tonight, then. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> anyways. Anyways. Sorry. It's hump day. <laughs> okay. We got a nice little hump day treat today. Brought to you by yours truly. Man. Amanda <laughs> with her, uh, what's, mortar and pestle. So she could muddle. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> now that I know what the hell that means. <laughs> what does muddle mean? I knew what it was. I just didn't know that's what it was called. So I was like, Britt, what? I'm over there mixing it up, but I'm going, what What does this mean? She tried to be bougie and complex this week. I did. Well, I found this cute little cocktail. It's called the Plantation. So I was like, yes. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> it sounds tasty. I can do that. And then I didn't read how to do it until tonight. So that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> We're about to try it out and see how she did. Yeah, it's got, let's see, it has fresh lime and simple syrup and fresh basil. Thank you, Shannon. My little uh, <laughs> herb whisperer over there. <laughs> sure, that sounds good. <laughs> um, some grapefruit juice, and it called for gin, but we did gin like a couple of weeks ago. So, Brittany likes vodka, so I put, I put vodka in it. Yay. I texted Brittany. I was like, hey, do you have any of this stuff? Because <laughs> then it calls for orange liqueur, ice, and club soda. So I may have overestimated it just a little bit or underestimated myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, it looks really pretty. We haven't tried it yet. Um, we decided to wait until we were live. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right. Here we, here Can we, we go. Taste it? Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Ooh. Okay, that's good. That's pretty damn good. And it smells good. Yeah. It smells like oranges and basil. Oh my gosh. Okay, this is going to be a really good summertime one, y'all. Yeah. Mm. Like, I could totally sit out on the porch of my plantation and drink that as the sun goes down. Shut your mouth. <laughs> I was about to say sit on my swing on the front porch of my yes. plantation. And you took the words right out of my mouth. Ooh, that is good. That's real good. Damn it. 
that could be dangerous. You might have to figure out a way to make another one of those. That could be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. All right. So go follow us on uh, Facebook and Instagram so you can see all the photos of our hump day treats and also the photos of all the cases that we're doing this week. Yes. You want to do that. All the good stuff. Um, it's oddities and curiosities pod on facebook and on instagram it's oddities and curiosities podcast I sure i don't know it's something one of, of the sort you'll find it yeah just look for our logo <laughs> <laughs> we're there we'll get it straight one of these days i Type don't know. In oddities i'm sure it'll pop up yeah yeah so anywho yeah with our subject being plantations we just want to point out mm-hmm. that um there's a lot of history in this episode Yes. And not all history is fun. Right. So we're going to talk about things that can be a little unsavory and just know that we're only doing, talking about them to give the full effect of the story and just putting factual things out there. Yeah. Yeah. We stuck to the facts and we reported the truth. And nothing but the truth. So help me. So yeah, uh, yeah. So so yeah. Not all history is pretty, obviously. Since so don't get mad at us for don't kill the messengers, guys. Yeah, I mean we've touched on things so far that are unsavory, but we just want to kind of point that out there that you know sometimes the things we talk about aren't for everybody, and that we are telling the most factual stories that we can mm-hmm. with what we've found, mm-hmm. and nothing but the utmost respect to all the victims so yes absolutely with that being said here we go let's do this okay so the plantation i chose was the myrtles plantation yeah because <laughs> it's haunted y'all yes and i like the spooky shit yes thank you so, for giving us that <laughs> i give the people what they want thank you baby <laughs> so handprints in the mirrors <laughs> footsteps on the stairs Mysterious smells and vanishing objects. No, I don't like the smells. I know. That freaks me out. Okay. The Myrtles Plantation in the town of St. Francisville, Louisiana, holds the record of hosting more ghostly phenomena than just about any other house in the country. Yeah. So, pop on over to the notes. Yes. And there is a picture that says Myrtles Plantation. Ooh. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like now. It's so pretty. It's gorgeous. I know. I love like the the moss hanging from the trees. Mm-hmm. And, That's yeah. a really good photo of it. Look at the sky in the background. Ooh, I know it's so pretty. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Long acclaimed as one of the most haunted houses in America, the Myrtles attracts an endless stream of visitors each year, and many of them come in search of ghosts. Mm-hmm. There seems to be little doubt about the fact that the house is haunted. The history of the plantation is filled with death, tragedy, and despair. Bum, bum, bum. (laughs) The Myrtles Plantation was constructed by David Bradford in 1794. Let's um, go look at an old picture of the plantation real quick. yeah. It says old pic. (gasps) Oh, my god! Yeah. Look at that. Wow. I know. It looks awesome. (laughs) Wow. It looks like an old tintype photo, and I love the tintype photo. I love it. My grandma has tons of them. Does she? Yes. Yeah, that's a cool photo. 
So um, David Bradford was one of five children born in America to Irish immigrants. In 1777, he purchased a tract of land in a small stone house near Washington County in Pennsylvania. I promise we're getting to Louisiana. Hang on. (laughs) (laughs) He became a successful attorney, businessman, and deputy attorney general for the county. He later met and married Elizabeth Porter in 1785 and started a family. As his family and business grew, Bradford needed a larger home, and he built a new one in the town of Washington. In October 1794, he was forced to flee, leaving his family behind. Mm. Bradford became involved in the infamous Whiskey Rebellion, and legend has it that George Washington placed a price on the man's head for his role in the affair. Good job. So I'm including this little tidbit (laughs) because I didn't pay attention in history class. Uh, I didn't know what the Whiskey Rebellion was. So, I'll share it for the rest of you that didn't pay attention. Yeah, because, you know, I really would have paid more attention if they'd have thrown this stuff in there with Mm -hmm. it. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what that was. Let me see what they were talking about here. Okay. The Whiskey Rebellion took place in western Pennsylvania and began as a series of grievances over high prices and taxes forced on those living along the frontier at the time. The complaints eventually erupted into violence when a mob attacked and burned down the home of a local tax collector. In the months that followed, residents resisted attacks that had been placed on whiskey, and while most of the protests were nonviolent, Washington mobilized a militia and sent it in to suppress the rebellion. Once the protests were brought under control, Bradford left the region on the advice of some other principals in the affair. After leaving Washington, Bradford first went to Pittsburgh. Leaving his family in safety, he traveled down the Ohio River to the Mississippi. He eventually settled. Yeah, he was getting the (laughs) fuck out of there. All right. He eventually settled at Bayou Sarah near what is now St. Francisville, Louisiana. Bradford was no stranger to this area. He had originally traveled here in 1792 to try and obtain a land grant from Spain. He was all over the place. Dang, yeah. He was too busy for me. Yeah, calm down, bro. When he returned in 1796, he purchased 600 acres of land, and a year later built a modest eight-room home near Baton Rouge (laughs) that he named Laurel Grove. Modest, huh? Yeah. Okay. He lived there alone until 1799 when he received a pardon for his role in the Whiskey Rebellion from newly elected President John Adams. So Adams gave him a pardon and said, you don't have to run anymore, brah. Okay. It's all good. We're good. After receiving the pardon, Bradford returned to Pennsylvania to bring his wife and five children back to Louisiana. He brought them to live at Bayou Sarah, and they settled into a comfortable life there. Oh, yay. Good. They were reunited. I'm glad. Yes. Okay. And when he built the house, it wasn't called Myrtle's Plantation. It was Laurel Grove. That's what he built. I like that name, too. Yeah. Bradford occasionally took in students who wanted to study the law. One of them, Clark Woodroof. Okay. <laughs> that And it's not spelled Woodruff, y'all. It's Woodroof. Yeah, it's Woof. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Not only earned a law degree, but also married his teacher's daughter, Sarah Matilda. Well. The young couple was married on November 19th, 1817, and for their honeymoon, Woodroof <laughs> took his new bride to the Hermitage, the Tennessee home of his friend Andrew Jackson, who he fought alongside with in the Battle of New Orleans in the War of 1812. You taking me where? <laughs> what? The Hermitage. No. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a honeymoon spot. No. But 
It was Andrew Jackson's house. Yeah. They were bros. It was in Tennessee, (laughs) so it was probably really pretty. After Hmm. the death of David Bradford, Woodroof managed Laurel Grove for his mother-in-law, Elizabeth. He expanded the holdings of the plantation and planted about 650 acres of indigo and cotton. Together, he and Sarah Matilda had three children, Cornelia Gale, James, and Mary Octavia. (laughs) Poor James just got James. James. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, buddy. (laughs) Tragically, their happiness would not last. On July 21st, 1823, Sarah Matilda died after contracting yellow fever. The disease was spread through a number of epidemics that swept through Louisiana in those days, which we learned about on our graveyard tour when we went to New Orleans. There was a lot. A lot of bodies. Lots of yellow fever. Mm. Hardly a family in the region went untouched by tragedy and despair. Mm -hmm. Although heartbroken, Woodroof continued to manage the plantation and to care for his children with help from Elizabeth. That was his mother-in-law. Okay. She was married to the man that built the house. Okay. In case you're lost. A little bit. So the man that built the house died. Okay. And Woodroof and that was had married his daughter. Bradford. Yeah. Okay. And Woodroof had married his daughter, Sarah Matilda. Okay. Because David's wife was Elizabeth. Okay. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yes. Well, good. So now David's dead. Sarah Matilda's dead. And Woodroof is still helping mother-in-law. Yeah. So Elizabeth. it's just mom and son-in-law left. And the kids. And the kids. Okay. Yeah. But the dark days were not over. On July 15th, 1824, his only son, James, also died from yellow fever. And two months later, in September, Cornelia Gale also succumbed to the disease. Aww. So he only has one One. child left, Mary Octavia. Yeah. Woodroof's life would never be the same, but he managed to purchase the farm outright from his mother-in-law. She was quite elderly by this time and was happy to see the place in good hands. She continued to live at Laurel Grove with her son-in-law and granddaughter Octavia until her death in 1830. Mm. After Elizabeth died, Woodruff turned his attention away from farming to practice law. He and Octavia moved away from Laurel Grove, and he left the plantation under the management of a caretaker. He was appointed to a judge's position in Covington, Louisiana. I know where that is. (laughs) (laughs) On January 1st, 1834, he sold Laurel Grove to Ruffin Gray Sterling. Okay. Okay, so original family no longer lives in the home. Right. They all gone. Okay. And Ruffin Gray Sterling has bought Laurel Grove. Ruffin Gray Sterling. I know. What a fancy name. Hello. The Sterlings were a wealthy family who owned several plantations on both sides of the Mississippi. (laughs) (laughs) On January 1st, Ruffin Gray Sterling and his wife, Mary Catherine Cobb, took over the house, land, buildings, and all the slaves that had been bought from Elizabeth Bradford by her son-in-law. So, it was a package deal. Yeah, he got everything. Yeah. Uh, Since the Sterlings were leaders in the community, they needed a house befitting their social status. Mm -hmm. They decided to remodel Laurel Grove. Because remember, in the beginning, it was a modest eight-room home. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It ain't no mo. (laughs) Sterling added a broad central hallway in the entire southern section. The walls of the house were removed and repositioned to create four large rooms that were used as separate ladies' and gentlemen's parlors, Mm -hmm. a formal dining room, and a game room. Priorities. Yeah. 
<laughs> On the outside of the house, Sterling added a 107-foot-long front gallery that was supported by cast iron posts and railings. Yeah, that's where we can sit and have our plantation mm. cocktails. <laughs> the completed project nearly doubled the size of David Bradford's house, and in keeping with the renovations, the name of the plantation was officially changed to the Myrtles. That's because there was cra- there's crepe myrtles everywhere. Okay. I don't know why the Laurel Grove, but myrtles was because of the crepe myrtles. I, I kind of like Laurel Grove better. That sounds fancy. Yeah. I don't know. Myrtles. Okay. Myrtles. <laughs> 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 so, you know. I'm going to take a drink on that Okay, one. you should. It keeps getting better and better. Mm-hmm. It's really good. I like your bougie cocktail. (laughs) You did so good. Thank you. (laughs) Four years after the completion of the project, Sterling died on July 17th, 18... I didn't mean to laugh, but it was just like... (laughs) Four years after you did this big, you know, humongous, life-changing thing, you died. Yeah. But he died of consumption, Mm -hmm. which... At the time, consumption was pretty much anything they could, yeah, anything they couldn't explain. Yeah. If they didn't know why you died, you died of consumption. Yeah. Unless you were a woman, because sometimes that was hysteria. Oh, yeah, because we, that's a whole, that's a whole other can of worms. Nah. I'm sure we'll get there at some point. If we haven't already. He left his vast holdings in the care of his wife, Mary Cobb, who most referred to as a remarkable woman. Mm hmm. (laughs) I'm about to read you a somewhat problematic sentence, but here we go. Okay. Many other plantation owners stated that she, quote, had the business acumen of a man. So. Oh, okay. (laughs) Which was high praise for women in those days. Yes. Which sucks. You know, like, this gal's all right. She can think like a man. (laughs) She has the business mind of a man. Bit like a man. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) She managed to run all of her farms almost single-handedly for many years. Sadly, the family was often visited by tragedy. Of course. Oh, my God. Of nine children, only four of them lived to be old enough to marry. Shut up. Yeah. The oldest son, Louis, died in the same year as his father. Shit. Daughter Sarah Mulford's husband was murdered on the front porch of the house after the Civil War. Oh, my God. Winter was teaching a Sunday school lesson. Uh, This was, sorry, I guess I cut that part out. His name is Winter Mulford. Okay. Winter was teaching a Sunday school lesson in the gentleman's parlor of the house when he heard someone approach the house on horseback. After the stranger called out to him saying that he had some business with him, Winter went out onto the side gallery of the house and was shot. Oh, crap. He collapsed onto the porch and died. The newspaper reported that a man named E.S. Weber was to stand trial for Winter's murder, but no outcome of the case was ever recorded. As far as is known, Winter's killer remains unidentified and unpunished. Oh, wow. There were other stories that pulled up about this that weren't true and apparently some of them get told on the tours Mm. of the plantation like all the news newspaper articles said the man died on the front porch okay 
But some of the stories that are told was that he was shot on the front porch and he crawled up the steps searching for his wife and died on the steps of the house, you know, trying to get to his wife on the second floor. Okay. All right. It's already a tragedy, people. He's probably already haunting the place. He died on the front porch. Yeah. I'm sure he has a little bit of a grudge. There was another story about like soldiers hiding out there after the Civil War and one of them had been shot and killed inside the house and there was supposedly a blood stain of a man's body on the floor that no one's ever seen. I was about to say, where's it at? <laughs> and there's no evidence that any soldiers were killed in the house. Like, you know, drama. Okay, yeah. They needed the drama. Well, then they shouldn't say it. <laughs> The war itself wreaked havoc on the Myrtles and on the Sterling family. Many of the family's personal belongings were looted and destroyed by Union soldiers, and the wealth that they had accumulated was ultimately worthless. That's a shame. Mm -hmm. To make matters worse, Mary Cobb had invested heavily in sugar plantations that had been ravaged by the war. She eventually lost all of her property. She never let the tragedies of the war and the others that followed overcome her, however, and she held on to the Myrtles until her death in August 1880. Yes, ma'am. She was buried next to her husband in the family plot at Grace Church in St. Francisville. Ooh. After the death of Mary Cobb, the Myrtles was purchased by Stephen Sterling, one of her sons. Yeah. He bought out his brothers, but only maintained ownership of the house until March 1886. Uh, there, Yeah. There are some who say that he squandered what was left of his fortune and lost the plantation in a game of chance, but most likely the place was just too deep in debt for him to hold on to. Mm. He sold the Myrtles to Oren D. Brooks, ending his family's ownership. Brooks kept it until January 1889, when after a series of transfers, it was purchased by Harrison Milton Williams, a Mississippi widower who brought his young son and second wife, Fanny Lynette Harrelson. Hey, Fanny. <laughs> what a name, right? <laughs> to the house in 1891. Wow. Um, it, it bounced around a lot yeah, there, there for a little for while. A couple of years. Injured during the Civil War, in which he served as a 15 year old Confederate cavalry courier. That was too much. <laughs> Williams planted cotton and gained a reputation as a hardworking and industrious man. Good job. He and his family, which grew to include seven children, kept the Myrtles going during the hard times of the post-war South. But tragedy was soon to strike the Myrtles again. Oh my gosh. During a storm, the Williams' oldest son, Harry, was trying to gather up some stray cattle and fell into the Mississippi and drowned. Oh my God. I know. Like, what the fuck what? is happening? Shattered with grief, Harrison and Fanny turned over management of the property to their son, Sergeant Minor Williams. Why would you name your kid that? Uh, and he later it's the South. I it's don't know. Aw- it's awful. <laughs> he later married a local girl named Jessie Folks. All right. By the 1950s, the property surrounding the house had been divided among the Williams heirs, and the house itself was sold to Marjorie Munson, an Oklahoma widow who had been made wealthy by chicken farms. Okay. <laughs> it was at this point, they say, that the ghost stories of the house began. They started innocently enough, but soon what may have been real-life ghostly occurrences took on a life of their own. Okay, it's just now starting because I was going to say, I think there may be a curse on that place. Oh, uh, there's probably a curse, yes, but the ghost stories didn't start happening until okay. the 1950s. Well, yeah, enough people got... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> died there you can't even count how many people died of yellow fever in that Mm -hmm. house and then 
the murder on the front porch and the kid falling in the river. Like, it's insane. There's a lot. Yeah. Okay. There is no denying that the sheer number of accounts that have been reported and collected here would cause the house to qualify as one of the most haunted sites in the country. Ah! <laughs> what we just said. <laughs> it's very likely that something unusual was going on at the Myrtles when Marjorie Munson lived there. Mm-hmm. Did she see a ghost? Who knows? I'm going to say probably. <laughs> but many others have claimed that they have. Frances Myers claims that she encountered a ghost in a green turban in 1987. She was asleep in one of the downstairs bedrooms when she was awakened suddenly by a black woman wearing a green turban and a long dress. She was standing silently beside the bed holding a candlestick in her hand. She was so real that the candle even gave off a soft glow. Knowing nothing about ghosts, Myers was terrified and pulled the covers over her head and started screaming. Yeah, because that works. (laughs) (laughs) Then she slowly peeked out and reached out a hand to touch the woman who had never moved. And to her amazement, the apparition vanished. Others claimed that they had also seen the ghost, and in fact, she was purportedly photographed a number of years ago. The resulting image seems to show a woman. It looks more like an older woman that was described by the Williams family. The ghost in the green turban? Yeah. That is a story that I cut out. I'll give you a little tidbit. Okay. But, so it was said that this slave named Chloe... Mm. But apparently, she was the slave of the Woodruffs when they were there. Okay. And she was Mr. Woodruff's mistress. All right. And she would listen in on conversations because she was worried that he was losing interest with her and she didn't want to have to go back out to the fields. I don't blame her. (laughs) So she was listening in and he caught her and apparently he sliced her ear off. And then as revenge, Uh she poisoned... Some some of the stories said it was revenge. Some of the stories said it was so she could nurse them back to health and then be the hero and not be sent back out to the fields. Okay. But poisoned the wife and two kids, but poisoned them too much. Like, they didn't just get sick. They died. Yeah. Well, we know that that's completely untrue because his wife and two kids died of yellow fever. Like, it's documented. They died of yellow fever. Okay. And there's no record of any slave working there named Chloe that web sleuths could find. All right. But um, apparently in some other stories, some of the stories, it ends right there. But and there's some other stories. They say that the other slaves upset by her killing the family. Yeah. Were afraid that Woodruff's anger would be taken out on them. <laughs> they captured Chloe and hung her from a tree. But still, there's no record of that happening either. Okay. So I cut, you know, I didn't want to go into depth with that because it was very obviously untrue. Okay. Now, there could still be a ghost with a green turban, you know, someone that died there. There's something. But it's not this Chloe story that... People have made up. That's one of the most popular stories when you Google Myrtle's Plantation. Okay. But it's not true. Right. Of course so, not. So, there were a number of deaths in the house from yellow fever alone, and it's certainly possible that any of the deceased might have stayed behind after death. And, you know, I bet some slaves died of yellow fever. Absolutely. They just probably didn't. It wasn't documented. Keep the same yeah. records that they would for, you know, the plantation owners. 
If ghosts stay behind in this world because of unfinished business, there are a number of candidates to be the restless ghosts of the plantation's stories. Yeah. If we believe the stories, the place truly is infested by spirits from different periods in the history of the house. There have been many reports of children who are seen playing on the wide veranda, in the hallways, and in the rooms. The small boy and girl may be the Woodruff children who died within months of each other during one of the many yellow fever epidemics that brought tragedy. <laughs> the small boy and girl may be the Woodruff children who died within months of each other during one of the many yellow fever epidemics that brought tragedy to the Myrtles. A young girl with long curly hair and wearing an ankle length dress has been seen floating outside the window of the game room. Okay. Cupping her hands and trying to peer inside through the glass. Girl. Is she Cornelia Gale Woodruff or perhaps one of the Sterling children who did not survive until adulthood? I don't know. Ask her. That's too many kids. That's too many kids. That's a lot of kids. The grand piano on the first floor plays by itself, usually repeating the same chord over and over again. That's creepy as fuck. Yep. Sometimes it continues on through the night. Nope. When someone comes into the room to investigate the sound, the music stops and will only start again when they leave. Oh, that's frustrating. As <laughs> no, thank you, please. <laughs> I'm trying to sleep. <laughs> What's especially special, especially special, is a huge mirror in the house. Um, during that period, it was common for people to cover all mirrors in the house with black cloth when somebody died. Mm -hmm. So in the 1800s, that was normal practice. That's why mirrors are creepy is. Mirrors are creepy. Apparently, this particular mirror was forgotten when Sarah Matilda and her two children died. Uh-oh. According to the legend, their spirits are now locked inside this mirror. Yeah. So if you go to <gasps> the notes yeah. and look at the picture that says mirror... <gasps> this is the mirror. Now, <gasps> I don't see anything ghostly in this picture, but it was the best picture of the mirror. There were some online that were like, oh, I see a ghost here, but it looked like somebody photoshopped something in there. Oh, okay. I could, didn't find anything that looked legitimately like a ghost to me. Some of it looked photoshopped. Some of it, they have something circled, but I didn't see anything in the circle. Yeah. No, I'd rather you just keep it truthful. Yeah. So this is the picture... The best picture I could find of the mirror itself. So. Okay. Let's see. Tiny children's hands are seen on the mirror that are impossible to wipe away. Oh. People see faces in them on a regular basis as well. The ghosts of slaves have been allegedly seen around the house asking if there are any chores for them to do. So, if you go to the notes. Yeah. There's a picture of a ghost. <gasps> Oh. So it's circled for us and this picture was everywhere. Ooh. And with even without it circled, I can see it. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. That's definitely it, a person. Looks it's, like a person standing between the houses. But when you zoom in, it's like kind of see-through a little bit. It is. You can see the the shingles yep. through the person. I'm pretty sure it's a ghost. It's yeah. a ghost, y'all. We found it one. It is. It's a ghost. Actual documentation. There you yeah. go. Fact. <laughs> <laughs> Many people have filed strange reports about the house. It was finally bought by James and Francis Kermine. Mm -hmm. Sure. Myers, the current owners. This 18th century plantation is now a bed and breakfast. Yes. So go back to the notes okay. real quick. And I have two pictures of different guest rooms. Let's look at the first one. The blue <gasps> room. Isn't that pretty? 
Yes. Very ornate. Very lovely. And guest room two is pink. Okay, I'm not a pink person, but I would so stay in that room. Super bougie. I would do it. That's a bougie room. I'd be creeped out. Oh, yeah. Just going in there. Like, it's creepy Just that hotel room in New Orleans. Like, that hotel was amazing. It was old, But it was very creepy creepy. as well. I liked it. Remember that crack? Yes. We had a weird crack. The crack in the floor and the the hole in the fireplace. The break in the fire. Yep. Mm. We took pictures. Okay, Brittany took pictures of inside the crack. I was like, I can't do it. I did. I didn't see nothing. There was nothing. We couldn't see nothing to report about the crack. I didn't really want to look. (laughs) (laughs) I expected to see an eyeball looking back at me or something. (laughs) The house has one guest room on the first floor and five guest rooms on the second floor. There are also six guest rooms in the plantation's grounds, which are like little cottages. They're like slaves' quarters that were converted into rooms. So if you go to the notes, you can look at the little cottages. Yeah, so that was definitely expanded upon the modest eight bedroom. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Or eight room. It was just eight rooms. Oh, just eight rooms, period. Yeah. But there's the little cottages. Dude, those look like little cabins that. I've stayed in before. Yeah, because you know they've they've been rebuilt from the ground up. They've had to have been. Yeah. But those are cute, though. Yeah. I'd stay there. Mm-hmm. The Myrtles Plantation is most often booked for parties, gatherings, corporate events, seminars, and even retreats. The plantation also has 10 acres filled with live oaks. Mm. The hotel's restaurant, the Carriage House Restaurant, is a must-try for anyone who is looking forward to a scrumptious meal. The restaurant is open every day except on Tuesdays, which is an odd day of the week. Okay. And no explanation was given to me. All right. Lunch is served between 11 and 2, and dinner is served between 5 and 9, in case anybody's down in St. Francisville and wants to go eat dinner. I want to go. Oh, we're going. Okay. People who like all things paranormal are advised to join the mystery tours, which are conducted every Friday and Saturday evening at 6, 7, and 8. Reservations are recommended for the tours. There are also history tours daily from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. every hour and half hour. So they just go on all day long. I don't want a history tour. I want a mystery tour. I want all of it. Okay. I'm going to do all of it. All right. The plantation has played host to a wide variety of guests from curiosity seekers to historians to ghost hunters. Okay. So we do the history tour first Mm -hmm. and then we do the mystery tour. Yes. We do the history tour. Go eat lunch at the carriage house. Yes. Go take a nap. Yeah. yeah and then girl. go on the mystery tour. <laughs> okay. That's the plan. We got a plan. Well, next time we go back to New Orleans, we're going to have to make a pit stop. In St. Francisville. Yes. Done. If not a few other stops. It's going to be more than a weekend trip. I know. Mm-hmm. Sorry, dudes. Uh, <laughs> Jamie. Sorry, my dids. <laughs> we need a week off. <laughs> It's for research. Yeah. The last time we needed time off work for a trip, that's what we kept telling him. This is for work. It's for research. Yeah, because he was like, y'all don't go down there and get drunk and party. We're not doing all that, Dad. Mind your business. Oh, we're grown-ups. Oh, we got this. (laughs) Actually, I was pretty damn proud of ourselves. We did really good. We were Mm grown-ups. Mm-hmm. So, employees at the house often get the worst of the events that happen here, of course. They are often exposed firsthand to happenings that would have weaker folks running from the place in terror. Mm -hmm. Get used to it. (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) 
One employee was hired to greet guests at the front gate each day. One day, while he was at work, a woman in a white old-fashioned dress walked through the gate without speaking to him. Ma'am! She strolled up to the house and vanished through the front door without ever opening it. The gate man quit his job and never returned to the house. I wouldn't quit over that. She's Me not neither. mean. Something a lot spookier would have had to happen. Yeah. That would have just been intriguing. I'd be like, uh, I... Cool. S- see you tomorrow. Cool. <laughs> cool. 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 <laughs> Over the years, a number of films and documentaries have also been shot on the grounds, and many of them have been paranormal in nature. Mm -hmm. One film, which was decidedly not paranormal, was a television miniseries remake of The Long Hot Summer, starring Don Johnson, Sybil Shepard, Ava Gardner, and Jason Robards. Shut up! That's a lot of famous people. (laughs) Okay. They're old. Shut up! (laughs) Okay, they're old. (laughs) No, it's really cool, though. It was just your shut up made me think about Mean Girls. Shut up. I didn't say anything. (laughs) That is so fetch. It's never going to happen. Okay. A portion of the film was shot at the Myrtles, and it was an experience that the cast and crew would not soon forget. One day, the crew moved the furniture in the game room and the dining room for filming and then left. When they returned, they reported that the furniture had all been moved back to its original position. <laughs> Telling y'all, ghosts don't like it when you move stuff around. Stop touching their shit. I don't like it. <laughs> Leave it alone. No one was inside either room while the crew was absent. This happened several times to the crew's dismay. Although they did manage to get the shots they needed. Well, good. They added that the cast was happy to move on to another set once (laughs) the filming at the Myrtles was completed. (laughs) Yeah. In 2002, (gasps) Unsolved Mysteries filmed a segment about the alleged hauntings at the plantation. According to host Robert Stack, the production crew experienced technical difficulties during the production of the segment. The Myrtles was also featured on a 2005 episode of Ghost Hunters. Mm Mm-hmm. The TV series Ghost Adventures also filmed an episode there. The television series Most Terrifying Places in America profiled the plantation. Everybody had decided it was haunted. Uh, Yeah, because it is. Yeah. So, that's the Myrtle's Plantation. Girl. Riddled with deaths of yellow fever. (sighs) Of course. Yep. That's all I got. That was really good, though. Thanks. I thought you did a very good job with all the history. Thanks. I wanted more spookies, but that's that's just what happened. I chose it and then started doing my research, and there was well, no turning back. Almost didn't do mine, because this one's a little sensitive, and it didn't have any hauntings and, like, no significant... I mean, yes, it has very many significant things that happen there, but, like, there's not a story or anything like that, so... Yeah. But... When I read, like, the nickname for this place, I was like, okay, all right, all right, I'm going to do it. So, take you a few sips. Okay. Catch up. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so mine is about the Whitney Plantation. Okay. Okay. At first glance, the Wall of Honor at Louisiana's Whitney Plantation Slavery Museum It's a series of granite stones engraved with the names of hundreds of slaves who lived, worked, and died there. It evokes a number of Holocaust memorials. But as the future mayor of New Orleans noted at the museum's 2008 opening, the site is different. 
This is America's Auschwitz. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That just gave me a little bit of chills. A little bit. Yeah. So when I read that, I was like, okay, I got to know more. Mm-hmm. Go on in, Mitch Landrew told the crowd, according to the New York Times. You have to go inside. When you walk in that space, you can't deny what happened to these people. You can feel it, touch it, smell it. Ew. Yeah. It's pretty bad. The former indigo, sugar, and cotton operation, which finally opened to the public after years of careful restoration in December 2014 as the country's first slave museum. That was a long (laughs) sentence. Is a modern avatar of injustice. Nestled off the historic river road that runs alongside the slow, lazy crook of the Mississippi. (laughs) The estate was built in the 1700s by entrepreneur Jean-Jacques Haydel upon land. I just love how, like, French the first and middle name are. And how, like, Southern the last name is. Yeah. Jean-Jacques Haydel. I know. That's great. Because Haydell is like a long-known name around mm-hmm. Louisiana. So, okay. I know. <laughs> so, Jean-Jacques, he purchased the land by his German immigrant father, Ambroise? 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 Ambrose? Nailed it. I don't it. know. Nailed it. Nailed it. It was the younger Haydell who expanded the estate and established the plantation as a key player in Louisiana's sugar trade transitioning the main crop away from the less profitable indigo markets. I mean, I'm kind of a fan of indigo. It's really pretty. Whatever. We don't, eh, we don't eh. need it. A couple of years after the Civil War, a, a northerner by the name of Bradish Johnson bought the property and named it after his grandson, Harry Whitney. All right. So I have a map of the old plantation. Okay. I, I numbered a few of them. If you try to blow it up, it's still kind of grainy. Yeah. But um, you can see where, like, the big house was. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the actual plantation. And then they had, like, stores, and there's a church, and then there's the slave cabins in the back. You know, all the barns and, um, I mean, gotcha. all of it. It's, so it's it was its own little, it was its own little town. Yeah, it, it, it was thriving all by itself. Okay. So... The restored property, a mix of original structures and replicas, includes an overseer's home, replica slave cabins, and a blacksmith shop, among other buildings. Even when nearly deserted, it feels like the place could spring to life at any moment as the slaves return from the adjacent sugarcane fields. The 15-year restoration effort was backed by John Cummings, the local lawyer and real estate mogul who purchased the land from a petrochemical company and invested eight million of his own money eight million pocket change yeah john cummings into restoring the property and developing the museum like just for that i think that's awesome though i do too i love it when when people wealthy people like that put their money towards something good yeah yeah it it happens every once in a while Mm mm-hmm um he did this, though, reportedly out of his own sense of white guilt over the horrors of slavery, according to the Times, which some may take as a good thing or a bad thing. I'm going to leave it alone. Yep. When you leave here, he told the New Orleans advocate, you're not going to be the same person who came in. Okay, so I have a picture of the Whitney as it looks today. I call it the Whitney because it just, there's a hotel called the Whitney on that movie Beaches. 
<laughs> so I've been calling it the Whitney. You're so pretty. Yeah. That's <laughs> shut up. Oh, it's gorgeous. Isn't it pretty though? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful house. I mean, I could stay there. Mm-hmm. It's doable. <laughs> Maybe for a night or two. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Here we go. <laughs> we'll see if you still want to stay there. So that is the key to how the Whitney Plantation is unlocking the grim story of America's greatest shame. A tale too often masked by a genteel preservationalist approach to plantation history that has pasted romantic gone with the wind wallpaper all over slavery's appalling reality. Yeah. I mean, I love the movie. Oh, it's a great movie. But there's so many it's so controversies <laughs> with it. I mean. Yeah, but it's a great movie. It is. It's ugh. Vivian Lee. It's not meant to focus on that. Like, people give that movie so much shit. It, it's Vivian Lee is a beauty. Oh, my God. Queen. And she can do no wrong. <sighs> she has mastered the eyebrow. Ooh. And it's fantastic. That stare. <laughs> I know. Oh, girl. Yes, ma'am. Whatever you need. Mm-hmm. So this one's a little bit different. Um, often plantation exhibits were established for those who lived through the civil rights era and yearned for a less complicated time, says Ashley Rogers, director of museum operations. And that's an easy thing to accomplish when you have a chandelier tour, quote unquote. Uh, where the previous focus at plantations has been on the house and the culture of Southern gent- gentility, <laughs> things are changing. At the Whitney, it's taking the lead. We care about the big house, but it's not about that, says Rogers. It's a slavery tour. The plantation is explicitly not a rosy exercise in Southern nostalgia, Part reminder of the scars of institutional bondage, part mausoleum for dozens of enslaved people who worked and died in the sugar fields of the Haydells and those across the South. The 250-acre plantation, 250 acres. That's crazy. Yeah. Serves as a monument um, to the terror of slavery and a rebuke of the structural racism that persists today. In the same way, countries like Germany and South Africa have built an entire education of reconciliation as they retroactively come to grips with their historical demons. The Whitney Plantation is an attempt to force the United States to grapple with the long shadow of American racism. The focus on the slave experience is is deeply enmeshed in the every moment of the Whitney's tour. Visitors are initially gathered outside the historic Anti-Yoke Baptist Church built in 1870, and the humanity of the slaves, slaves is immediately driven home. Inside the church, attendees are surrounded by the clay sculptures of the slave children who lived and, in short order for many, died on the grounds of the plantation a ghostly monument to their lost childhoods. That's so sad. I don't have it marked, but let's go look at the church. And there's an outside photo that says church. Okay. Neat, cute. It is. It's a pretty building. Yeah. And it's it's still pretty original. And then on the inside, you can see all the sculptures that they have of the oh, kids. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like eerie and sad and yeah. cool all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm glad I'm, th- I'm not the only one that was like, oh. Uh, yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
Withered and raw, the sculpture, sculptured children are the most visceral reminder of those who suffered and whose stories make up the heart of the tour. Tourists are often given a physical souvenir, a pass on a lanyard with a profile of an enslaved resident of the Whitney. They have a famous quote on the back of them, of some of them. One tourist reported that she got the card of John Little. Mm -hmm. It was a fugitive slave who escaped his bondage in 1855, and it had a quote from him on the back of it. Tisn't he who has stood and looked on that can tell you what slavery is. Tis he who has endured. Um, okay. So I couldn't find that one, but I do have an example of one of the lanyards that they do pass out. I chose Peter for a reason. Okay. I'll tell you about Peter in a minute. Okay. Um, there's also another photo that I want you to go look at real quick. And it says Facebook. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, this is kind of proof. When I post it, y'all will be able to read it better because it's, it's so, like, blown up. It, you can't read it. But, basically, it, it's a photo and it says, why we don't do weddings. And it explains the history of the plantation down below. And it says, look, like, this was a place of tragedy. We're not going to do weddings here. We're not going to do, like, the basic tourist stuff here this is us. It's this, a museum. Yes. Yes. So I really respect that and I yeah. like it. Um, the Federal Writers Project, FWP, established by President Franklin Roosevelt as part of his Depression Era Works Progress Administration, is the reason slave narratives like Little's exist at all. And only because of a historical stroke of luck. Some 6,600 writers and editors were deployed across the country as part of the FWP, including a unit formed in the spring of 1939 to record and preserve the oral histories of America's last generations of slaves. thought that was cool, too. Mm -hmm. With the somber tone established, a visitor's horror builds as the tour passes the Wall of Honor, the chirping of birds, and the distant hum of machinery in the still active fields providing an incongruous soundtrack. Yeah. The slaves um, that are on the monuments mostly lack their surnames. Most of them are, it's a full name for disposable property that must have seemed a waste of effort, whatever. The walls are dotted with Bobs and Josephs, Amelias and Marys. That's sad. I know. Like, I w that bothers me that it's not like their full names, but. I do have a photo of the Wall of Honor, or part of it, anyways. Okay. Thought that was pretty cool. There's yeah. photos and stuff on there, like as many as they could gather. That's so, neat. At least there's something. There's something, yeah. But scattered throughout is something more telling of the slave experience than a last name. Testimonials to the brutality doled out by plantation overseers. They took and gave him 100 lashes with a cat of 99 tails. I don't know if y'all know what that is, but it's a leather strap that has a bunch of spikes on it. It's like a leather whip that has nine tails on it, mm -hmm. and it has a bunch of spikes. Okay. So, it was of her Uncle Alf, um, whose crime was a romantic rendezvous off their property one night. Mm hmm. But his back was something awful. But they put him in the field to work while his blood was still running. Another story ends with a single terrifying, fright, terrifying, 
<laughs> okay. Another story ends with a single terrifying phrase. They buried him alive. Oh my goodness. So one such slave is Peter. Peter's become a little bit of famous a little bit famous. Um, here's a little bit of his story. Okay, so Peter was an escaped slave from this plantation. By the time he made it to a Union encampment in Baton Rouge in March 1863, Peter had been through hell. Bloodhounds had chased him. He had been pursued for miles. He had run barefoot through creeks and across fields. He had survived, if barely. When he reached the the soldiers, Peter's clothing was ragged and soaked with mud and sweat. But his 10-day ordeal was nothing compared to what he had already been through. During Peter's enslavement at the plantation... He not just endured the indignity of slavery, but a brutal whipping that nearly took his life. And when he joined the Union Union Army after his, his escape from slavery, Peter exposed his scars during a medical examination. Raised welts and strafe marks crisscrossed his back, and the marks extended from his buttocks to his shoulders, calling to mind the viciousness and power with which he had been beaten. It was a hideous constellation of scars, visual proof of the brutality of slavery. And for thousands of white people, it was a shocking image that helped fuel the fires of abolition during the Civil War. A photograph of Peter's back became one of the most widely circulated images of slavery of its time, galvanizing public opinion and serving as a wordless indictment of the institution of slavery. Peter's disfigured back helped bring the stakes of the Civil War to life, contradicting Southerners' insistence that their slaveholding was a matter of economic survival, not racism. And it showed just how important mass media was during the war and that nearly destroyed the United States. So I'll have a picture of that. I have so many thoughts, angry thoughts Mm -hmm. at the moment. Yeah, I know. So many things to say that I don't even know what to say. Go look at the photo. I don't want to yet. First off, mm. that's bullshit. Yeah. Uh, that's why I kind of like Because you it. all knew what was going on. Yeah. Like the entire country knew what was going on. How could you not? That's why there was the issue to begin with. Thank and you. Yeah, it was fucked up. Slaveholding being a matter of economic survival. Yeah. Is bullshit. You. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can pay people wages. And yeah. still get the same amount of work done. Yeah. The way they I, were treated. I, I like, have so it, many words. I have is, words. It was so bad. I, I'm just going to stop there and go look at the fucking picture. Because yeah. it's about to make you mad. I literally cannot. I'm not Yeah, it makes me no sick. More. I don't like it. I don't okay. like it. I literally cannot. Mm-hmm. Looking at his back. <laughs> He's not the only one that went through that. I, I know. I mean, that was like every day. But that just shows you. I mean, it's not like, oh, he did something bad one time. It's over with. Mm-hmm. He's got years and years and years and years and years of scars on his back. Yeah. They all had years and years and years yeah. and years of scars on their body. And I can't. Okay. Yeah. That's why this one's so hard, you guys. <laughs> like, I'm we, angry. I'm angry. Out of, out of all the stuff that we've reported on, this one's hard. So, as the tour passes, massive bronze sugar kettles, the slave quarters, and the kitchens... The narrative of persecution is a is a relentless wave of nauseating statistics. Some 2,200 children died enslaved in the home between 1820 and 1860. Infant mortality was grotesquely common. 
Some 100 slaves were forced to work around the clock during the short autumn harvest season to keep the massive sugar kettles going. Slaves laboring in the dark routinely sustained third-degree burns and lost limbs, although this rarely ended their servitude. Amputations were frequent. Punishment by the whip, common. A trip to the big house at one time called one of the most interesting in the entire South by the Department of the Interior reveals incredible architecture and design, including rare murals by Italian artist Domenico Canova. But the elegant front portico looks out toward the river, turning its back on the daily parade of torture and terror just steps away from the back door. Um, of course, because who would want to look at that every day? Right. Yeah. How convenient for them. Out of sight, out of mind, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I have a picture of these kettles. Jesus. Okay. So, yeah, they had fire burning around them at all times. Like, those aren't small. Mm-mm. And, I mean. That's correct. Of all ages, we're expected to keep them going at all times. That can't be safe. Mm-mm. The Whitney Museum has structured its entire education around the guided experience. It concludes with a reminder that the racial injustices of the 19th century didn't simply disappear with the Emancipation Proclamation. The guide described the excitement curators felt when they first took possession of the big house and found stacks of well-preserved records of the post-Civil War system, a low-wage cousin of the exploitive sharecropping system, of in which the cost of doing business always mysteriously remained one step ahead of the farmer's revenues. Blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. According to Rogers, this new approach to a long romanticized aspect of Southern history is having an impact. The Whitney Plantation saw 34,000 visitors in its first year and nearly doubled the expected turnout, if still lower than visitation figures for for other more established plantations and the museum has discovered a growing audience among schools and especially african-american tourists for unsanitized history whatever the fuck that means unwhitewashed history i mean yeah i like it Mm -hmm. and rogers suspects that they are having having an impact outside the whitney's own audience other museums are changing how they do things says rogers Plantations now mentions slaves and slavery more explicitly in their listings. Which they should. That's yes, they should. Whole, Absolutely. That's what a plantation was. Okay. So is it haunted? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say so. I would uh, guess. Probably is what I have written down, but I really couldn't find any stories of specific things. Supposedly there's another woman in the mirror at that one too. But that was just like one of those little Reddit threads and they were like, I'm not going to post a photo of it because I don't want it to seem like it's official. Shut up. Yeah. (laughs) If you're not going to post a photo, then shut up. But yeah, I'm going to guess that that one is definitely haunted because I mean, there was like, there's, there's more memorials that I have. If you want to go look like I have the slave jail, um, which does not look fun. No. There's also a monument of uh, at the Field of Angels, and like that's where the wall and stuff is too. It's a mama holding her baby. Mm-hmm. I have a picture of a slave cabin, and they called them cabins. Mm-hmm. And it's got some more of the little clay sculptures sitting on the porch. 
And there's also another memorial. I can't click the whole name for some reason. A memorial by Woodrow Nash for the German Coast Uprising. Slaves who participated in the uprising were tried and executed. Their heads were placed in public view along the Mississippi River to serve as a warning to others. What the fuck? Yep, fucked up. Um, nope, so that's like there it. too. Don't like it. I know. But I think that was in like 1811 or something. But yeah. I think what they're doing is a good thing. I do too. I really do. And I'm glad that other plantations are jumping on board. Um, I know that like the neighboring plantations are. So I think that's cool. Tell the whole story. Yep. Not just the romance. Tell it like it is. Thank you. I am done. That was <laughs> that was great. It was very educational. Okay. And I'd never heard of the Whitney before. Me either. And now it's a place that I would like to visit and it'll probably make me sad. I know. But I would really like to go. Yeah. So there you go, guys. There's plantations. I hope you're sufficiently bummed out. Like we are. Happy Wednesday. Woohoo. <laughs> <laughs> now I need to finish my cocktail. Yeah, you do, because I'm down to ice cubes. It's really good. It's so good, y'all. <laughs> I'm sucking on ice cubes. I don't care. All right. Hit us with your segment, baby. All right. Let's stay in history. Yeah. Okay. This is a cold read. I haven't read this. Nice. I'm, I'm winging it. Okay. On January 26th, 1936, the so-called Mad Butcher terrorized Cleveland. Okay. The dismembered body of Florence Palillo, 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 (laughs) is found in a basket and several burlap sacks in Cleveland. What in the fuck? I'm so sorry, Flo. (laughs) Wow. The 42-year-old woman was the third victim in 18 months to be found dismembered with precision. It sparked a panic in Cleveland where the unknown murderer was dubbed the Mad Butcher. In June 1936, another head, and later a headless body, turned up and police were unable to identify the victim. Even when a replica mask of the victim's face was displayed at the Great Lakes Exposition, the victim remained a mystery while the Mad Butcher continued killing. Okay. By the summer of 1938, with the body count into double digits, the Cleveland police were desperate to find the Mad Butcher. One suspect, an actual butcher <laughs> named Frank Dolezal, was interrogated for 40 straight hours oh. until he confessed to killing Florence Palio. However, he subsequently changed his story many times and killed himself in his cell before his guilt could be determined. Oh. In reality, though, few authorities believe Dolezal was actually the killer. It is believed that the real suspect was relatively prominent and politically connected and as a result, the police department trumped up the case against Dolezal. All official police records of the matter have been destroyed. The Mad Butcher's <sighs> attack stopped in Cleveland after the Dolezal's suicide. The true identity of the Mad Butcher remains a mystery to this day. So they considered the case closed since he committed mm-hmm. suicide and they destroyed the records. God yes, damn it! Because it was some crooked politician. You know, it was a crooked politician. Mm. Yeah. So, lots of fucked up history for you today. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Remember in the beginning when I said we give the people what they want? Yeah, I don't... This, I don't think anybody this, wanted this. may this. have not been what they wanted. <laughs> Stay with us. Stay with us. Next week's good. They're. I mean, they're, they're all, all good, good. <laughs> for different reasons. 
Today we educated you and hopefully mm-hmm. made you angry at humanity for a little while. Yeah. Because it definitely did us. Yes. I don't like slavery and the Holocaust and yeah. any sort of genocide. Yes, there you go. Any sort of genocide is I can't I can't fathom that to no. do for to any do human to another being person. To do How that to another person. It? For no reason other than the color of their skin or, you know, their nationality or their religion or whatever. Just to do that to somebody for no other reason. That doesn't make you, that makes you such a horrible person. I have no words. Ah! There are no words. Okay. So, um. All right. That's it. Any, Any other business we need to take care of? Yeah, yeah. We'll post it if we forget it. All right. What else? That's it. That's all I got. Me too. Okay. I'm done. Um. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>Thanks for hanging out with us. Don't forget to visit us on Facebook and Instagram for episode picks and announcements. Please rate and review on Apple, Spotify, and Facebook. We want to give a huge shout out to Stephen Goetzke for editing, Craig Weaver for music, and our very own Amanda Hagens for art. We'll talk at you next week.